you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We will be in chapter 15, and we will, by God's grace, cover all of chapter 15 tonight. Revelation chapter 15, as we look at the angels with the final plagues, the angels with the final plagues, and the prominent role that these will play, uh, they're introduced here and they continue on for several chapters, but Revelation chapter 15, Revelation chapter 15, and if you're physically able to do so, let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's holy and written word, Revelation chapter 15. Hear the word of the Lord that is given to us tonight. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King, you King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave to the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, this is your word that's been given to us tonight. May you now bless your word. May you now help us to sit underneath the the word and to listen intently and carefully to the word. We pray for the wisdom and the grace to do so for your great glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. Um, I don't know how many of you remember this, but in 2008, a senator, uh, I believe he's a senator, um, filed a lawsuit against God. A U.S. senator filed a lawsuit against God. Of course, he was an atheist, and he filed a lawsuit against God. And, and this is what he claimed. Um, he, he filed a lawsuit against God, and I quote, for making terroristic threats of grave harm against innocent people. He went on to accuse God of causing widespread death and destruction of many millions of the inhabitants of the earth, And he went on to say that he did this through terrible floods and earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes and tornadoes, uh, pestilences, pandemics, uh, and he showed no compassion or remorse. He went on to accuse God of being a terrorist and a mass murderer. Well, as you can imagine, of course, the, the courts dismissed the claim, but it is clear that one day this blasphemer is going to meet his maker, and he too will be made to acknowledge the king of glory. And this is where we're at in Revelation chapter 15. We are at this point of where God promises that uh, he is going to finish pouring out his wrath against sinners. He is going to pour out his wrath against the nations. And he is going to, and, and as we'll see in Revelation 15 and 16 and 17 and even I believe in 8 into 18, this will be just a time of God's wrath being poured out. 
And through the bold judgments, or the, 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 the vials, as the King James says, but the bold judgments, uh, and, and the, the, the whole chapter, and these chapters, I would say, uh, and as a matter of fact, the whole book of Revelation could be, con- uh, could be condensed into just showing the absolute power and sovereignty of God over the nations. He is, he is, he is not uh, disturbed at all by the nations. Um, and, and, and it is true that at times terrible things happen in life. But, but we have to remember that when, when civilizations collapse, when, when the world is on fire, so to speak, when disaster strikes, God is the one who is completing his will for the glory of God the Father. Right? God doesn't just kill good and innocent people, men, women, and children, in random acts of uncontrolled violence. Although certainly there are, as this U.S. senator uh, wanted, wants people to believe, that is the case, that God is just a big meanie and he just enjoys inflicting pain on people. That is not the point of Revelation or the Bible. Um, instead, it shows us the absolute devastation of sin and God's sovereignty over that sin and devastation. Certainly not to say that God does not judge the nations, as, he, as, as we see tonight, he most certainly will and does. As we've seen throughout Revelation, he does this. So tonight, what I want us to see is, I want us just to see and look at, uh, here in, the, in chapter 15, this, this, this whole scene that takes place in heaven. These, these angels with these final plagues uh, before the ultimate victory of the Lamb that is to come. And so the first thing I want you to see in Revelation chapter 15 is this. The arrival of the angels with the plagues. The arrival with the, of the angels with the plagues. It's found in verse 1 of chapter 15 and it says, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, if you've been paying attention, this phrase of, and I saw another sign in heaven, will automatically trigger a thought in your mind, maybe. But that is, there is, there is a very similar passage in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And then chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. And went on to talk about a woman, right, um, clothed with, uh, with, a, with the moon uh, under her feet and things like that, and the stars and um, talking about this great wonder, but yet here John says he saw a, he sees another great and mighty sign. He sees another marvelous or wonderful sign that is that is appearing. And and with this, what what we need to understand is that in John saying, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And then he goes on to mention the seven angels having the seven uh, last plagues, right? So when he does this. What is he doing? Well, in doing this and in conjuring up this, this idea, what he's evoking in our, in our understanding and in the imagery of our minds is that God, is, God is, is, is the one who throughout history has done these awesome and great and marvelous deeds. That God has been doing this in the Old Testament and the New. And, and the emphasis here is on God's incredible act of bringing history to a close in accordance with his own very will with his own very timetable. That is that no one forces God's hand. No one says to God, okay, you have to do this now. No, no, not at all. God says, oh no, I do this on my timetable, in my time, when I want to. And so he says, John, is, John by describing God like this, uh, 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 describing the sign like this as great and marvelous, 
he is drawing our attention back to the Old Testament, back to remembering the works of, of Jehovah, of Yahweh in the Old Testament and his works through the nation of Israel. And the sign itself is what? Well, the sign, this great and marvelous sign that he sees here are these seven angels having the seven last plagues. This is the great sign that John sees here. Now, when John is bringing up this idea of the great and marvelous, and then he mentions the angels, the seven angels and the plagues, where should our mind automatically go if you know the Old Testament? Well, it should certainly go back to the book of Exodus. And it should certainly remind us of the plagues that God visited upon the nation of Egypt for their wickedness and for their sin. And so what God is doing as we read through the vials and these bowls, what God is doing is he is reenacting upon the nations now, not just one nation, but all the nations, the seven plagues. The seven plagues. The seven plagues that fulfill and fill up the wrath of God. And it's interesting because here in verse 1 he says, I see the angels, but the angels don't act immediately, do they? When do they start acting? Well, they don't start acting until chapter what? Chapter 7. Or I'm sorry, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse, verse 7, right? When, the seven, when the, one of the four beasts gives to the angels the seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, right? And then uh, in, in chapter 8 and, and ongoing, the angels then begin to act in accordance with God's will. But the, but the entire, the entire ch- these two chapters are all about, chapter 15, chapter 16, are all about the plagues of God. And this idea of plague is found throughout, or plagues being visited upon the nations is found throughout the book of Revelation. So for instance, this idea of plagues is found in Revelation 9, 9 18 and 20, and then again in Revelation eleven sixteen. Speaking of the judgment uh, miracles of the two witnesses that, uh, that, that were to come at that point. And the Exodus miracles, the Exodus plagues were what? What were they intended to be? Well, they were intended to be signs of God's power and his judgment upon those who stand in his way of showing mercy to his people. And so they, they function, so, so these vials, these bowls, will function in the same way that the plagues do in the nation of Egypt and, and in their plagues. It's going to function in a lot of the same ways. It's clear that these plagues are provided, uh, much like the plagues in Egypt, and after each one of them, there is an opportunity for the nations to repent. Just like in the nation of, just like to the nation of e- uh, Egypt, you know, at times Pharaoh hardened his heart, other times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And here again, the nations are following this exact same path, this exact same path that, that Pharaoh followed, so they now follow, and so that they are now going to do the same. The nations will harden their hearts, and at times God will harden their hearts against him, and that the, that the, that the wrath of God may be thoroughly completed and, brought, and history brought to his conclusion. And it's interesting here that John adds, isn't it, the purpose of these vials, of these bowls being, being given, right, or being poured out. He says, for in them, and this is the vials that the angels will pour out, these bowls that the angels will pour out, the wrath of God is filled up, or it is fulfilled. Right? It is fulfilled once and for all. The wrath of God is completed in these vials. 
In Revelation 10.7, it talks about the mystery of God being completed at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And here, in these seven vials, these seven bowls, uh, once this has been finalized, the day of the Lord arrives quickly. It arrives. It's just, it's, it's there. It's here. It comes onto the scene. And the wrath of God is often seen throughout the book of Revelation. I mean, without, with, I mean, throughout the book of Revelation, the wrath of God is seen. So, for instance, in Revelation 6, 16 and 17, the wrath of God is mentioned. Revelation eleven eighteen, Revelation 14, 10, Revelation 15, 7, Revelation 16, 1, and Revelation um, uh, 16, 19. So that all throughout the entire book, it is clear that the nations who have flaunted themselves against God, the nations who have said, oh, we are, we are glorious in our beauty and arrayed in all of our splendor, God will now bring to the dust their sin. God will mock them and flaunt his power over them. As they stand and they, they shake their fist in God's face, proverbial face. And it's true that when this is happens, judgment is necessary. Sin demands judgment. It must be punished. It must be destroyed. If God is just, it must be punished. And this is what God is promising here in Revelation chapter 15. That God is going to finish, fill up, finish the wrath of God. Because, believer, we understand that the wrath of God is either completed in Christ. If we are in Christ, then it is completed in Christ for us. Jesus has drank the wrath of God down to its dregs, down to the bottom for us. Or else we will drink the wrath of God. So either Christ has tasted and drank the wrath of God for us, if we are in Christ, or if we are not in Christ, then the nations, we must taste the wrath of God. And the nations have refused continuously to flee to Christ. As a result, now God judges the nations. But there is another thing going on here in Revelation chapter 15, and that's found in verses 2 through 4. And that is the church triumphant the church triumphant you say well what do you mean by that well here's what i mean by that look look with me here in verses two through four it says and i saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire and with them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the hearts of god and they sing the song of moses the servant of god the and the song of the lamb saying great and marvelous are your works Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, you King of saints, or you King of the saints. Right? Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments are made manifest. And so what we see in chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, is, 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 is the church. Now we would call us, now it would be said of us that we are the church militant, then we are the church triumphant. And it's seen really as reminiscent, if you go back to chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, the saints that are standing in heaven beside the, beside the sea of glass. And, and in first chapter 4, verse 6, um, which literally has the understanding of the sea of glass is standing before the very throne of God itself. 
And really, this imagery that John uses of the sea, the sea of glass is, is actually pulled from the Old Testament. You say, well, now, I don't remember the Old Testament ever saying anything about seas of glass. Well, but think about this. The sea throughout the Bible ha- ha- is very important. It is very important. Because in Genesis 1-7, it talks about the waters at creation. In 1 Kings 7, 23-26, it talks about the bronze sea that was in Solomon's temple. And then again in Ezekiel 1.22, it talks about the expanse above the living creatures, the waters, the sea that is above the living creatures. And so the sea has constantly been a, 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 in the view of God throughout, throughout the Bible as you look at it, as you, as you view it. The sea or, or the idea of a sea is very important throughout the plan of God or the, the imagery of, of God because it, what it does is it symbolizes the majesty and splendor of God. It, it, it reflects the majesty and the splendor of Almighty God. Right? And this is why he calls it a sea of glass. And he goes on to say that, it is glow, like, that, is, that this is glowing with fire, this, that it's mixed with fire, Right? In other words, because of God's glory, he must judge sin. And I think in a sense, this really does picture a, a, river, in, a river of fire, like in the manner of a lake of fire flowing from the throne. And, and it really does, I think, depict the idea of fiery destruction that flows from God because he is so good, he is so righteous, he is so glorious that he must judge sin. The sea is often pictured also throughout the Bible, such as in places like Psalm 73 and 13, verses 13 and 14. It is a picture of a place of evil with that serpent that is called Leviathan that has been swept clean by the fires of God and it has now become a sea of glass, of purity and of holiness before the Lord, before the throne of God himself. And so God has swept away all sin. He has swept away in his judgment all sin and wickedness. And the promise of bringing all things under the authority of Christ. And it's interesting that where, where are those who sing the song of Moses and the Lamb? Where are they standing? Not by the sea of glass. They're standing on the sea of glass. They're standing upon the sea of glass. We say, well, pastor, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, let me say this. It shows, I think, three realities. That is that believers standing on the crystal sea, are, they are standing there as conquerors. Having, having Christ having conquered the wrath of God for us, and us as God's people having overcome the nations and the world and this is why I think in three different ways we understand the, the victorious nature of what we experience in Christ. First, the personal conflict that we have with the beast, right? The second is the religious pressure that his image tells us. Because notice what it says. Begin verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a, glass, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and all them that had gotten the victory over the beast, notice this, over the beast, number one, over his image, number two, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, and stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. Now, what, what, what does this have to do with anything? Well, let me say this. It has much to do with everything because we understand that we have, by God's grace, overcome 
Satan, the world, and the world system. We have overcome his religious pressure, his image, and we have overcome the economic persecution uh, that, is the, that the number of his name represents. Now, if you don't think that there are real things going on in our world, real concerted efforts to punish Christians for belief in, 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 in Scripture, in the Bible, you have not been paying attention to what is going on in Canada. There is a bill known as Bill C-4 in Canada. It was pushed through, and what it does is effectively outlaws biblical sexuality and gender, calling it rather a, a myth, a myth. And under the Canadian law that has been passed and went into effect on January the 8th, it is possible for anyone who calls anyone who believes themselves to be transgendered or mislabeled in their genders or anything else, to they can be charged under this law under hate crime. Now, let me say this. If you don't believe me, go look up C4. Go look up Bill C4 in Canada. I have no doubt you will, but you need to, because you need to understand that what generally happens in Canada is not far, is not far behind for us. It may take a few years, may take a decade, but what has happened? What what happens in Canada generally comes to California and Oregon and Washington, and then into New York, and then it sweeps across our nation. And there is great concerted effort, not only in Canada, but in other places, Sweden and uh, other, other areas, where to mislabel someone's gender is actually against the law. It's in, and, and, and I believe it's in Denmark or Sweden, one of those nations, that a pastor and a, le- and a, and a member of their legislature has actually been charged with a hate crime because they simply wrote a book on biblical sexuality. And they're awaiting trial. Do not think that this is far away from us, my brothers and sisters. Do not think that this is far from us. It may take a number of years, but it's coming, unless God intervenes. And no, that's not necessarily the sign of the mark of the beast. But understand, there is is even now religious and economic pressure. There is even now within the world system a pressure for us to conform. Not to, the, not to Christ and not to his word, but to the world and the world system. But here we are promised that God and his people, no matter the level of temptation and trial and pressure and cosmic powers that are brought to bear against us, we will be victorious by God's grace and through his empowerment. And it's interesting that we are told in Revelation chapter 13 that when the beast takes the life of a saint, he is conquered by that believer who yields his life. That is, that their death truly is the final victory because their hope is in Christ. But then we see an interesting song that these believers are singing. And it's the song of the church triumphant because it says that they had harps of gold and they are praising God. But what are these harps of gold? Well, literally just just has the idea of of playing and singing for God. 
Um, and so it gives me hope that though I can't play an instrument on earth, maybe someday I'll be able to. But as, as God's people, we understand that we, we are able to sing and rejoice because of what Christ has accomplished in us and through us and for us. And as the elders in, in chapter 5, verse 8, and the 144,000 in chapter 14, verse 2, we too will sing a song of worship. And we will sing here in chapter 15, verse 3, what is called the Song of Moses and the Lamb. And it's out. Now you say, now, wait a minute, what is the Song of Moses? Well, the Song of Moses is found in Exodus 15 and in Deuteronomy 32. And it's where Moses lifts up his voice and he sings a song to God for his victory over Egypt and over the enemies of God. And here, here the saints of God are singing for their victory over Satan and the Antichrist. As God delivered Israel from the Egyptians through the Red Sea, so Christ has delivered his people from the dragon by his own blood. Like Moses, after the exodus from Egypt, the saints now sing a song of victory. And here the song of Moses is now called the Song of the Lamb. And what exactly is this song? Well, you can go back and you can look at Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32 and find out, or you can get a synopsis of this song here in Revelation 15. And there are, really are a couple of, different, uh, couple of different things going on here. First is in verses, uh, verse 3 and 4 is praising God for his person. And so you, hear, you have titles of things like Lord God Almighty, O King of the Saints, the Holy One. And uh, although it's not mentioned here or it's not stated in this way, uh, in verse 4, um, it just, there is the idea of God being the King of the nations because he says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy, for, listen to this, for all nations shall come and worship before you for, you, for your judgments are made manifest. In other words, hey, guess what? Christian, believer, Christ is not only the king of the saints, but ultimately he is the king of the nations. He is the king who exercises sovereign rule and reign over all nations, tribes, and peoples. He is the one who is not, who is not bothered. He is, not, he is the one who is, not, who is not troubled when the nations rise against him and who shake their fists. And he's not troubled by that. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Psalm chapter 2, he says, kiss the son. The psalmist says, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. As a matter of fact, Psalm 2, I think, does serve for us as a great example of what the nations are doing even now. They are saying, let us, let us plot against God and his, against his Messiah. And yet it says that God sits in the heavens and he laughs at them. He laughs at them for their foolishness. But here the church is singing. Here the people of God are singing the song of the Lamb in victory. Because final victory has been given to us by Christ on the cross. And Jesus is our true exodus, our true deliverance for all eternity from the power of sin by his own dear blood. And so he sings of these titles of God, the Lord God Almighty, the King of, King of Saints, the Holy One, right? The one who is, who is holy is what, is what is said here. Just and true, right? You King, uh, you King of Saints, right? The Holy One, the, the King of the nations, the one to whom the nations will bow. This is the song of the saints. This is what we're praising God for. But we're also praising God, not just for who he is, but also for the works that he has done. And that's what it says. I mean, look, look at what it says about his works. It calls his works 
great and marvelous. It calls his works just and true. It says that because of his works, all the nations should fear. It says that God is in all of his works just. And because of this, God is to be praised. We are at the heart of the theme of the book of Revelation, which is that God is the righteous judge of all the world. And we are either in Christ and take shelter in Christ, or we taste the wrath of, the, of God himself with the nations. And so a title, the king of nations, is given to God here. Again, not, not, ex- not expressly, but when it says here, Uh, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments are made manifest. The idea here is, again, is that he is the, why is this the case? Because he is the king of all the nations. And because the title is given to the God of heaven, we need to understand that this is an important movement throughout the book of Revelation. Because there is a movement from from sovereign judgment to the promise of salvation, right? Taken from Jeremiah, right? Uh, And moving onward. Because only God is the king of the nations, not Caesar, right? Not not any any ruler, not any despot, not any any king, not any queen, not any... uh, uh, whatever title they want to give themselves or grant to themselves, but Jesus Christ alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a double meaning here. So in God being the sovereign judge, there's also the implication of God being the righteous redeemer here. Because it says in verse 4, right? Who shall not fear you? O Lord, and glorify your name. For you only are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments are made manifest. Now, why is it that all the nations will come and worship before him? Well, there are two reasons. One, because God has redeemed out of all the nations and all the people groups of the world, people for his own name and for his own honor and his own glory, redeeming them in Christ, but also Whether or not they want to, they will be made to come and bow the knee before Christ. And considering the imperial cult of John's day, that is that Caesar worship was the center, it was the core of of everything that that the empire was about, right? Raising their Caesars to to the positions of gods and worshiping them and burning incense to them as gods, right? Because the the idea was never was there a problem with you worshiping other gods. That was never the problem. If Christians had said, you know what, we'll worship Jesus, but we will also say Caesar is Lord and just burn a little incense, the Romans would have never had a problem. Never had a problem. But because as Christians we say, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And Caesar serves him. The Romans persecuted the Christians. And the same has gone on throughout the nation since then. Every time a king or queen or president or dictator of any sort has risen and said you must worship me and the Christians have said we will not worship you because you are not God only God holds me captive to his will they 
are not treated very well. They are not treated very well. And considering the imperial cult of John's day, the idea of God being incomparably great and the only one who is to be worshipped, I think we need to understand that, that, that John's Christians, the Christians of John's day, would have clearly understood the meaning of Christ being the king of the nations and called them to hold fast to that testimony. And this is really part of the mission theme in Revelation. That while most of the earth dwellers are going to be obstinate and face the wrath of God, some are going to repent and believe the gospel. That through, through the witness of the church throughout history, through the witness of, of God's people throughout history, there will be those whom God, has, God will save and convert to Christ. And they will fear and glorify him through the eternal gospel that was preached and will be preached until the end of time. And lastly, then, there are the seven angels that emerge from this heavenly temple. The seven angels that emerge from this heavenly temple. You see this in verses 5 through 6 in their preparation. You say, well, how do they prepare? Well, notice in verse 6, And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Right? Um, so w- what are they preparing to do? Well, the preparation is, first and foremost, the temple in heaven opens. That is, that, that, that the scene is theologically and textually linked to the tearing of the veil at the death of Christ in Mark chapter 15, verse 38. However, unlike the tearing of the veil that signifies the end of, 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 of uh the end of the priesthood of, in Israel and God now, now becoming Emmanuel, God with us, and Christ fulfilling God's righteous demands of the law. Here, it prepares the way for God to end human history and to bring judgment. God is now prepared to fully judge the world for its rebellion. God is now fully prepared through Christ to execute his judgment. And that's exactly what happens is that the angels emerge here, don't they? They come out of the temple. And they have, and and notice here, notice here. It's interesting the way the text words this. And the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. That's with with a belt, right? uh, A belt. But notice this. It's not until verse 7. They get the bowls. It's interesting. It's interesting that, that, that it says that they are clothed in white and they are pure and holy and yet they're wearing these priestly garments and yet they are holding these and yet the, the beast, one of the four beasts, comes up to them and gives them the bowl to put the wrath in. Interesting. It's a very, very interesting imagery that is, that is used here. Why is this the case though? Because God is going to carry out his judicial sentence against the nations. I mean, even throughout all of this time, throughout, throughout these chapters, throughout the first 14 chapters of Revelation, God has over and over and over and over and over again, through his mercy, called the nations to repent, called the nations to bow the knee, called the nations to flee from wrath and flee to his mercy. And yet over and over and over again, the nations refuse to take refuge in Christ. It's almost as if, it's almost like the obstinate child 
that the more you punish them, the angrier and more obstinate they become. It's like the obstinate child that the the more that they get in trouble, the angrier they get, and the more they say, I'm not going to do it. I don't care. It doesn't matter how much you punish me. It doesn't matter what you take away. It doesn't matter how much you you get on me. I don't care. Right? They become more obstinate. And this is the idea here, is that the nations have become more obstinate, more and more and more obstinate. And, And instead of heeding God's grace, instead of heeding God's mercy, instead of coming to Christ and fleeing from his wrath, despite them knowing their and being fully cognizant of their reality that they deserve to be punished for their sin, they refuse to flee to Christ. The nations have broken covenant with God, and they must face the consequences of breaking covenant with God and worshiping the false God, the beast, and his image, worshiping before him and his system. And it's interesting that these garments are called, uh, these are the garments again, are these, these golden belts or sashes that are worn, right? They are emissaries of Christ. In other words, they are acting only on Christ's uh, uh, orders and on his behalf. And they are commissioned then, right? In, in, in chapter 15 here, verses 7 and 8, the four beasts come to them, right? Or one of the four living creatures. They, they, they come to them and they, they, they give them their, their orders, and what's their function? Well, the, the, the living creature's function up until this time has been to literally guide in, in, uh, to guide in heavenly worship. And, and they have, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, sent out the four horsemen in judgment. Um, but now they serve as angelic messengers who commission the seven angels to go and to pour out the wrath of God once and for all upon the nations. And it does lead us to understand that this is, this is not something they're doing on their own. It's not something they're doing on their own whims or their own, um, their own desires. This is something they've been commissioned to do. And, and notice with me here what, what happens, right, once they're given these. It says, And the temple was filled with, the, with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Now, it is interesting that God uses, shows John this, and this imagery should bring us back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. You remember where this this also takes place in the Old Testament? Well, in Exodus, God comes down upon the mountain with fire, but also with smoke, with clouds. And he envelops Moses in this cloud the cloud that led Israel was none less, no, no, nothing other than the Shekinah glory of God. The cloud that filled the tabernacle in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle was completed and dedicated to God, so that the priests weren't even able to go in. Again, God's glory filled that temple. And again, the cloud that filled the temple with his glory in 1 Kings 8.10 and through 12 and Isaiah 6.3 and 4 and Ezekiel 10.2 and 4. Anytime God's glory fills the temple, it it is showing off his his perfect uh, pleasure, his uh, his perfect pleasure with what has taken place. He is filling here as they prepare to pour out the wrath, his wrath upon the nations, God fills this temple. And the imagery that he uses here is, there's a threefold imagery that, 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 that John uses here, that John gives us here. 
The first is this, as I've already mentioned, smoke. But the second that he also gives us is that of glory. And the last that he gives us is that of power. And all of this is accomplished how? Through the wrath of God. That is that in the final purging judgment, God will purify the world. And it is interesting that it is at this moment. Isn't it interesting that it's at this moment? God is, God is not said to be in the temple up until this point. At which point God now takes up residence in this comic, in his cosmic temple. And it's at this point that the earth is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Or as the waters fill the seas and cover, cover the oceans. The manifestations of God's justice saves his people and wins him praise. And, 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 and when we talk about judgment, we, we must not do so flippantly. We must do so with seriousness and somberness. Because as much as the world may, may think that these things are in conflict, God's mercy and his love is not in conflict with his judgment. God's mercy and God's grace is not in conflict with his, with his righteousness and holiness. The same God who is loving and gracious is the same God who will one day fully vindicate the faith of his, of his suffering saints and will one day completely unleash his wrath upon sin and the, the sin of the nations because they have refused to take refuge in Christ. And it is in this moment that biblical justice will reign. Let me say one final thing here because I know we're out of time. But let me say one final thing here. Christian, don't be confused. There is a difference between what we see today called, quote-unquote, social justice and biblical justice. There's a great world of difference. Do not be confused. Do not be led astray by those who would say, we need to fight for equality based upon what grounds? Based upon Christ, based upon biblical law, based upon the truth of God's word, not based upon what man thinks. And so we must, we must rejoice in biblical law and in biblical justice. Not in social constructs built in atheism and in foolishness of this world. We must, we must love justice, but not the world's justice. We must love law, but not the world's law. We must love God and his law. We must follow God and his law. We must serve God and, his, and in him faithfully serve him. Do not be led astray by the foolishness of the world that tells you that you and I must, must, must lower one group of people to exalt another. That doesn't fix anything. Biblical justice promotes the truth of God and the law of God. We must promote that and love that and call the nations to submit to that. Not social justice. And for that, I will never apologize we must fight for biblical justice and social justice and biblical justice are not the same thing they're just not do not be led astray by the foolishness of this world cling to Christ and his word believe in, in equality by all means but as it is defined in God's word and the law of God not the law of man let's pray father we pray that as we close our time together that you would help us 
you would help us to follow you and serve you and honor you in all that we do and say. We do look forward to the day in which you fully reign and rule over the nations. We do look forward to the day in which you fully and completely rule over the nations and your justice rules and reigns once and for all, where every wrong is corrected and every, every wrong righted. God, we pray that in this time now in which we exist, that we would call the nations to repent and come to faith in Christ, and as a result then follow biblical law, follow the truth of the word of God, not the, not the foolish constructs of, of man's own thoughts. So God, may, may you help us and help our brothers and sisters who are, who, 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 very, who are very really facing discrimination under laws in Canada such as Bill C-4 and other, other laws that have passed. God, around the nations, no matter where man lifts themselves up against you, may you put down those nations and show them the glory of Christ. And may you do this for your glory and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.